Okay, so, um, second section, we're going to come to talk about the role of the chorus. I, I am moving through the piece uh, sort of in order, but, but not quite, because if I want to show you differences, I'm going back with some boards in a little bit. Um, and I ended the first half with Luther's shocking statement, when you see the nails piercing Christ's hands, you can be certain that it is your work. I'm going to read you the paragraph from which that comes now. And this is um, from a, uh, a meditation on Christ's passion, uh, yeah, written in 1519. You can find it online. Meditation on Christ's passion, Martin Luther, translated by Martin H. Bertram, Betram, I think it is actually Betram, unless I've misspelled his name. Um, you will find it on the <coughs> And this is what Luther says in this translation. You must get this through your head. He's quite direct. You must get this through your head and not doubt that you are the one who is torturing Christ thus. For your sins have surely wrought this. In Act 2, and apparently he's referring to 36 to 37. In Acts 2, St. Peter frightened the Jews like a peal of thunder when he said to all of them, You crucified him. Consequently, 3,000 alarmed and terrified Jews asked the apostles on that one day, I don't know how they know it's 3,000, I don't know how he knows that. Um, consequently, and I also love the use of consequently, 3,000 alarmed and terrified Jews asked the apostles on that one day, Oh dear brethren, what shall we do now? Therefore, when you see the nails piercing Christ's hands, you can be certain that it is your work. When you behold his crown of thorns, you may rest assured that these are your evil thoughts. It's pretty punchy. Um, and he goes on to be quite rude about people who put their uh, trust in the Mass, saying that people who go to church, the Mass will be okay. No good. It's not going to help you. I'm quite rude about that. Luther Clare, though, is quite rude about all sorts of things. Let's not forget that Bach has this Lutheran inheritance at the absolute heart of what he does. And I referred uh, in the first part to his use of chorales. That's these German hymns that you're all going to know. So some of them now you won't know as English people. Um, oh, sacred head so wounded. I'm assuming you know. Great translation by Robert Bridges. And we're going to sing it a little bit later on. Some of the <laughs> um, it's interesting. I mean, just pausing briefly. Of course, we're losing our hymn tradition now. So, you know, people are not going to get this as they go forward. But for us, I suspect most of us in the room, we recognise these hymns. It's our music. It's our music. It's the music we can sing. So Bach is bringing us into the passion story. It isn't enough that this is a represent representation of some events from thousands of years ago. It's got to be here and now because of what Luther tells us, because we are responsible for this. It is our sins which lead to him being crucified. So we've got these chorales, even in the first chorus, which is that astonishing dialogue. Again, I don't think I know a piece which opens with people questioning and answering. It's extraordinary. There's the chorale, there we are, right from the word go. The other thing these chorales do, um, not in the first chorus, but throughout the rest of the piece, is that they allow you to press the pause button on the narrative. And the arias do this as well. So you're going along, something terrible happens, Jesus gets hit in the face or whatever it is, and you press pause, and you have an opportunity to do two things. 
to hold the drama, but also to remind yourself, I've done this. This is my fault. Okay, it's it's a very it's a very Protestant um, Lutheran um, attitude, I think, to all this. So there's a dual drama in the St. Matthew Passion. On one hand, the story of Christ's capture, trial, suffering, and on the other hand, the psychological response, our psychological response. Now, I mentioned earlier on that opera and oratorio and passions, let's say oratorio straight passions, are not the same thing. In opera, you dress up, you come on a stage, you are one character. You come out, I perform as. Aeneas, whoever it is, I stay in character as Aeneas all the time, I leave the stage, and that's when my character goes away. In, in the Sabbath Passion, um, people will come on stage as Jesus, as um, uh, Peter, um, but they then, um, when they sing an aria, they are not necessarily Jesus. That is not Jesus singing an aria. It's someone reflecting on what's happened to Jesus. Um, we're going to come on later to this sort of thing. It's, it, it's not about characters on stage. It's not about Peter singing Evarmody when he denies Christ. In fact, Peter is a bass, and that aria is sung by an alto. So you see, it's not characterised in the same sort of way. But um, the, the chorus, these chorales, I think are very much, you're either in your character, as an angry person, and a lot of that, and we'll hear some in a little while, or you're being us in the present day. <coughs> Because we know these hymn tunes, that's us. So you're getting up every so often, you're singing these tunes, and then all of a sudden you're the people calling for the um, crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Same people. Us today, us then. Very important. We're right at the centre of this story. Um, before I go any further to play you a little, um, little bit more music, I just need to talk to you a little bit about uh, how this piece might have been performed. Because on the whole, we are used to hearing it with... Um, large choir, so if you come on Wednesday we'll have the Cathedral Chorus there and the Cathedral Choir, it's going to be about 80, 90 singers and the orchestra in Bach's time thanks to the work of Joshua Rifkin and Andrew Parrott we cannot be 100% certain but we're pretty certain it was probably sung one to a part okay, it's eight singers and those eight singers sing all of the choruses and all of the arias and all of the recitatives so the tenor in choir one is the evangelist Ten in choir two will do the arias. Bass in choir one is Jesus. And bass one has to sing some of the arias as well. So it's a very joined up. It's a very joined up thing. We, we've got a slightly more Victorian concept of it, of the great massed choirs. and It works very well like that, because it adds to the monumentality of it. And in St Paul's Cathedral, eight singers would not, and the St Matthew Passion would not be worth the paper that the tickets are printed in. Um, so we go for the larger because we can do that, we're pretty big um, so just uh, I just sort of plant that in there, there is a sense in which although this is cosmic and enormous it can be quite an intimate um, piece now let's have a look at excerpt 2 this is the scene when Jesus uh, is telling the disciples that one of them will betray him and the chorus respond with Lord is his eye. There's then a chorale. And then uh, Jesus again points out that there is someone there who is going to be betrayed and it's going to be really bad for this person. And then Judas says, is it me? So, let's just, in terms of what we learned um, with music, 
the evangelist starts, he sings secco restative, dry restative. Okay. That means quite fast, not always, but essentially quite fast, very little coming, just a cello and the organ. When Jesus sings, he sings with what's commonly called a halo of strings. The strings play along with him. And I'm going to talk to you about Jesus a bit later, so I don't want to get bogged down on him yet. But just notice that whenever he sings anything, the string instruments of the orchestra play with him. He's enhanced. And the evangelist says they got very troubled, and they say to each other, is it me? Is it me? Lord, is it me? Am I the one who's going to betray you? Now, 12 disciples, one of them, Judas, we know goes last. So presumably, 11 of them say, is it me? Strangely, Bach sets that text 11 times. Bin ich, bin ich, is how he writes it. Different parts, different, uh, 11 <coughs> times altogether. The next thing that happens is there's a chorale. What's the first line of the chorale? It is I. Eleven people replying, and we know it's you know we know that's wrong. The next people who speak are you, and you're saying it's me. I'm the person who's guilty for this. Okay, here's Luther coming out really strong again. It is I. I should atone, bound hand and foot in hell. There you go. Good fire and brimstone for you. The scourges and the bonds and what you endured, my soul has earned. And this is one of those chorale texts um, which, you know, has been, uh, which Bach has cherry-picked because he wants to comment on it. And then you'll hear the evangelist comes in again. The evangelist often says, he answered, he said something. That doesn't happen in often. They don't need to do that. And then she said, we don't do that in opera. Don't need to. In um, the passions, the role of the chronista, the evangelist, is absolutely essential. So there's a lot of he answering. So. You'll notice the strings again. And then you notice a rather frightened Judas. Because he's a bit nervous down the bottom there. And Jesus just said to him, you say it is. Who asked? You say so. And that's where we're going to finish this um, thing. So, um, have a listen to Jesus's halo that sings when he sings. Uh, listen to the chorus with the eleven shouts of "Is it I?" and that chorale, because it's us. Uh, now, which bit to press? Here's Harnoncore's version. Notice a little, the little sort of clever thing they do. Judas goes up. Jesus goes to Zargus. Goes down. He resolves it. And so they're keeping there this idea that Jesus is the lower voice, the bass voice. The other characters are the higher voice. And Jesus is the, is the serious weighted one. But we'll talk about him a little bit later. Um, that chorale, you hear that's just one verse. So Bach could have used five verses. If he'd used five verses, it wouldn't have worked. If he'd used three verses, it wouldn't have worked. It's the fact that it's just the one little verse that he throws in there. And again, he's picked exactly which verse he wants. Now, it's unusual, perhaps, that other composers didn't pick up on this technique of, the, of this bringing us into stories. Uh, people do later. John Stainer attempts it with the crucifixion. That's, that's hugely influenced by Bach. You know, a modern passion, much smaller. He does use whole hymns, and arguably that might be part of the, you know, part of the, um, the difficulty with it for some people, because it's constantly stop, start, stop, start, stop, stop. Um, there are a few others at that time. Maunders on to Calvary, widely excoriated by most people as being dreadful. I've never heard it, actually. Anyone done Olivet to Calvary by Maunders? No. Have you done it? Do you like it? Yes. 
I've never heard it. Everyone has said, oh, it's dreadful, dreadful stuff. Um, but there are, of course, two other things where we see modern, uh, that are music, um, or music of our modern time, coming into stories to make them more real. One of is um, Michael Tippett's Second World War cantata, A Child of Our Time, which uses African-American spirituals, Steal Away, uh, Nobody Knows, Go Down Moses, By and By and Deep River. So again, very much of us. And of course, most importantly, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's Jesus Christ Superstar. Doesn't use hymns particularly, but you know, it's our music. Makes the story, makes the story alive. The chorus uh, can be us. Uh, they can be taking the parts of the action. They also have a Greek chorus function sometimes. The Greek chorus would stand on the side, shouting and waving at people, trying to tell them what's going on, and everyone ignores them. Um, essentially, if you know your um, opera, Diagyptische Helena by Strauss is like that. There's a character called the Omniscient Seashell, and she stands on the side of the stage and tells everyone what's going on, and they all ignore her, and terrible things happen. Um, or The Rape of Lucretia by Benjamin Britten. It's a male chorus and a female chorus. And when, when, when Lucretia is actually attacked, the male and the female chorus are making as much noise as they can to stop it, but they can't, because it has to happen. And this is what Bach does in the excerpt I'm going to play now, which is excerpt three. It looks short, but it's actually reasonably sizable. We've skipped ahead a little bit here. Um, this is um, when Jesus has been in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's been praying, and the disciples are falling asleep. And Judas turns up with the uh, band of soldiers and kisses Jesus, and the soldiers lay hands on him because Judas has identified that this is the one they need. It's interesting, isn't it, that soldiers don't actually know the person they're supposed to be arresting. They have to get Judas to identify him. So it shows you how much, uh, how much politics is going on here. Um, uh, and the reaction to this, Bach's reaction to this, at this moment, is to shove us back into E minor. That's the, that's the key of the, the first chorus. And he comes up with the most astonishing duet for a soprano and an alto voice. Um, Thus, my Jesus is now captured. And the chorus starts shouting very briefly from the side, leave him alone, stop it, don't do it. Completely powerless, they're absolutely impotent. But they do this three times, they interrupt um, this uh, lament that is really being sung by the soprano and alto until they can't bear it anymore. And they start shouting louder. And they sing this extraordinary chorus. Sind Blitzer, sind Donner. Our lightning and thunder extinguish in the clouds. Where are you, God? Is what they're saying. How the hell are you allowing this to happen? Open the fiery abyss, oh hell. Crush, destroy, devour, smash. It's fantastic in German. Zertrümmere, verderbe, verschlinger, zerscheller. You know, you have to channel your inner right-wing people. Um, uh, the false betrayer, the murderous blood. They, they, want, they want an, an Elijah-like moment where God rains down fire on these people to stop it, but they can't stop it. Go back to Harmonfor's first movement. You can't stop this narrative. It's got to carry on. It has to happen. Uh, and that, I think, is, is what's going on here. But this is the chorus. You will, in a sense, you're trying to do the right thing here. If we're working on the basis that this is you, you're trying to do the right thing. Sadly, it's not going to work. But Bach gives it a very good go. He writes one of his brilliant eight-part uh, choral movements. You'll hear woodwind, 
and violins flying all over the place. It's very exciting. But first of all, the lament with the chorus pleading that we let him go. So I'm now back to Ton Koopman and the Amsterdam lot. Can't do it that fast on Wednesday, I'm afraid. The cathedral <laughs> acoustics won't allow me to do that. Still not enough consonants. Very irritating. Um, so, um, any, any thoughts about that? Tell me how it makes you feel. All that. So it's an astonishing juxtaposition. One from the other. It is, it is very much your frustration, the, the chorus's frustration, of desperately wanting this to stop. Yeah. And, not be, and that's a pretty good attempt at stopping it, I have to say. The celli bass in the, in the orchestra, you can hear them, semi-quavers, all the way through every single bar, and the woodwind, as I said, um, flying up and down in that, that last section. That's a pretty, if you're going to have anything that's going to stop something happening, that would be something which would put up a good fight, I'd suggest. But it can't work. It can't work. It has to carry on. Um, I was talking to you about that, all that setrumra and verderbe verschlinger, verschneller, all that stuff. Bach is brilliant at setting German. Absolutely brilliant. Obviously, he is German. That helps. <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't, the Germans weren't actually very good at setting German until um, Heinrich Schütz, uh, a predecessor of Bach's. And that's, of course, because a lot of music was in Latin. And before the Reformation, everything was set in Latin. The idea of things being set in the vernacular was unusual. There are a few pieces in German, there are a few pieces in English, devotional pieces. But it's only really when we get released from. Um, the Vulgate Bible, and that we start to have Martin Luther's translation, uh, or the English, the great Bible um, Henry VIII produces, that we can write in our native languages. And a lot of German writers are very reluctant to do this. Schutz is the end of the 16th century, the beginning of the 17th. And he's the one who gets hold of the German language and makes us understand how fantastically exciting it is. Like all those, um, it's almost cursing what he's doing here. And you should have heard more of it in that recording, and I'm only sorry that they didn't manage to do it. Um, and a brief aside here, I am a fan of passions being sung in English. I do like them, because it gives you that immediacy, again, it sort of plays into what Bach is doing, that this is about you, that you are, and you are characters in this. Um, however... I don't do it in St. Paul's Cathedral. I changed it. I stopped doing it in English and turned it to German because it's so hard to hear anything in that building that you hear more German text than you do English. So the word that I always cite is crucify as opposed to kreuziger. Because you can't, in the St. John Passion, you can't hear crucify, 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 crucify. You can't hear it. When you go kreuziger, 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 it's much easier. So I reckon you hear more text in German in St. Paul's um, than you do English. But there's another element to this, that Bach writes his melodies, the up and downness of it, uh, and the accompaniments to match the sounds of German vowels. And when you turn them into English, it can make it much, much harder and slightly less successful sometimes. So on balance, I prefer it in the original language, but I entirely see and think it's a very good thing to do, to have it in English every so often. Um, you also need a good translation, of course. If we go into authorised version for the English, then that, we lose our immediacy because that's not immediate to us anymore. Um, I've got one more chorus bit to play you now, before, and then we're going to leave them alone until we um, come back uh, at the end. This is your uh, excerpt four. I don't know, I don't know. So I've mentioned to you that um, 
this is not an offer. People, um, people take character roles, but they're not, um, they're not in costume, as it were. Um, St. Matthew's Gospel is the only person, um, the only one, to feature Pilate's wife. He makes a very brief appearance. You can see her here. She's about just above halfway up. Pilati Vibe. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. I've suffered much in a dream today on his account. So she's um, she's very like um, Julius Caesar's wife in um, Shakespeare's version of this, who turns up and says, "Don't go to the Senate." I've just got a feeling you shouldn't go to the Senate today. <laughs> Don't do it. Um, always listen to your wife. Always listen to your wife. Which um, and of course, yes. in, 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 I mean, the, Caesar in Shakespeare, Caesar at least talks to his wife. Pilate doesn't talk to his wife. At all. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm not being funny about this, but there are various reasons why women get dreams. Women often get dreams, um, or, or, or um, indications. Um, the, the kind person in this period would say it's because they're sensitive, because they are open to these things. The, the, the nasty person says it's because they're weak, they are susceptible to these things. Um, but um, I think what's going on here in St. Matthew is that he quite likes to um, underline the cosmic stuff that's going on. So when Jesus dies, graves are broken open. Um, and uh, this is in some of the other Gospels as well. There's the veil of the temple. Pilate's wife has a dream. There is something cosmic going on here. The world is out of its orbit. It's not right. The, the, the sun is going to be darkened in the afternoon. And this is another element of that. This is a tiny bit of evidence that Matthew has included, that something very, very important is happening and it's very, very wrong. Sadly, Pilate's wife is met with complete silence, and that is her only appearance, and it doesn't appear as if he gives her the time of day. Um, and they carry on. Uh, now, this se- section that I've given you also has the shortest chorus on record. It's three notes long. Um, you see it uh, about a third of the way from the bottom. It says chorus one and two, barabam, barabas in English. Uh, and this is a great dramatic coup. I think both these recordings actually are, are um, too quiet. They do it as if it's as if they're they're saying it and that they know it's wrong which I quite like the sophistication of. When I do it in St Paul's, it's just going to be completely devastating. <clears throat> your, your socks need to be blown away by this. Um, it's unusual in recitatives to have the choir responding to something in a recitative. Very unusual. Chorus, you know, angry chorus. They said this, let him be crucified, that's fine. But this one word, it's amazingly powerful. And of course, Pilate, the consummate politician who thinks that he can sort all this out, probably. Says, what shall I do with Jesus then? What do you want me to do with this man? I've done nothing wrong. What shall I do with him? And their response is to let him be crucified. What does Bart do? After you, the chorus, have just sung let him be crucified, there's a corral. How strange is this punishment. The good shepherd suffers for the sheep. The Lord, the righteous one, atones for the crime on his servant's behalf. Well, back to you again, I'm afraid to say. And this is, a lot of people have a problem with this Lutheran idea. And in the Protestant, the Protestant prayer book, you spend a lot of time on your knees saying sorry. You don't often get up from your knees. Um, in the old um, Book of Common Prayer, Holy Communion, there's an awful lot of, I'm not worthy to be here to do this. Um, you know, and that is, um, it is it's very, the, the, the revolutions that the church goes through are very important at highlighting different things. But it can get a bit doer every so often. Mm. Yeah. You want to get up from your knees and say, yes, it's okay, it's all right, I've been forgiven. But not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so here, I'm using here uh, Harnenkor. So this is the Viennese uh, team. 
And I hope I've got the right one this time. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? So we're going to pick up 45A. Um, have a listen to Pilot's wife. Her dream is rather curious sounding. Litanintraum goes up a strange interval because dreams are strange. They have to have weird intervals in music. And then the Barabam shout we want to hear. So there you are, right at the centre of this drama. <coughs> so very sophisticated, this toing and fraying. It makes you almost schizoid, though. Because one minute you're calling from the crucified, but the next minute you're commenting on how it's all your fault. <coughs> so it, it's, it's quite hard work for an audience, it's a Matthew Passion. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, all art has to be about the composer, or the creator, say. the executor, which in the case of art is often the same person, but not always. Uh, the musicians in this case, and the listener, you, who listen and, and um, take it on board in various ways. So it's a, it's a complicated, um, it's a complicated process. And it, it, it's exhausting, I think. It's certainly exhausting to conduct, I'm telling you. It is, it is like, it's like conducting Parsifal. It's the same length as Parsifal, very much. I need to draw to a close, but there's one more piece I want to play which I haven't given you a, a text for because I don't want you to read it, I want you to listen to it. Um, but just before um, I play that to you, let me tell you, this afternoon, uh, we're going to pick up with uh, three characters. We've already started looking at Jesus, so we're going to, going to finish him off with um, after lunch. And uh, then we need to talk a little bit about the librettist, Kikanda, um, because we haven't dwelt on him yet. And we're going to look at the theology of two denials. And if, forgive me, if you were here in my bark day in 2015... Then you will have heard some of this before, so don't give the game away. But we will look at the betrayal of Peter, how, how Bart writes it and how he reacts to it, and the betrayal of Judas, and how Bart writes it and how he reacts to it, because it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, but before then, I just want to play you the last movement of the first half, because that helps our chronology moving on. And it will come as no surprise to you to know uh, that the last chorus of the first half is a chorale. Uh, but it's not any old chorale. Uh, and what Bach does here, and this is maybe what I was, when we were talking about structure and um, emotion going together, what he does is he takes the chorale, he puts it in the top part, in the soprano part, but he weaves the most astonishing orchestral uh, uh, um, set of music around it. Uh, it, it. The lines are broken up, they don't happen immediately one after the other, they're broken up, the orchestra plays... It's a little bit like Jesus Joy of Man's Desiring, if you know that. It's the same sort of idea that um, the orchestra plays, the choir sings a line, the orchestra plays a bit more, the choir sings the next line. Uh, it's exceptionally disjointed in the voices, though. The, the um, lower voices always come in after or occasionally before the tune, so there's an instability about it. But there is the most astonishing, again, forward momentum in the music. And it's extremely beautiful, and it comes just after that Donna and Blitzer chorus. Uh, I think it's, it's Bach giving us a little slap on the wrist, actually, saying, you, you, you do not have the right to interfere with us, because this crucifixion must happen. It's only through Christ's crucifixion that we're redeemed. And he pulls us back into our chorale world to allow us to go into part two and experience the real pain of what's going to happen. This is um, Tom Koopman's version, I think I don't know. I think, I'd, I think I will do Tom Cookman's version. I'll tell you, the, it's a poetic text. As I said, you don't need to read it. I, I want you to, just to listen to it. Um, o man, bewail your sin so great. There you are again. Not going well, is it? O man, bewail your sin so great. For this Christ, from his father's bosom, went forth and came to earth. Of a virgin, pure and gentle, he was born here for our sake. He wished to mediate. 
To the dead he gave life and conquered all sickness until the time came that he should be sacrificed for us. Carry the heavy burden of our sins upon the cross <coughs> itself. So there is light here. What Bath has done with Picander, this is one of Picander's texts, they're trying to explain to us, after the anger we've just had, stop it, we've got to stop this thing happening, saying, no, 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 no. Since Christmas Day, since the beginning of this story, this child has come here to die. That's what he's saying. It's okay. And the, the thing I particularly like is carry the heavy burden of our sins upon the cross. That that's, that's a bit of light in the Lutheran theology, that our sins are going to be taken away through this, and that's why we mustn't stop it. Although, as we'll see a bit later on, Bach himself tries to stop it. <coughs> 